Good morning. I want to thank John and the group for that wonderful song to open us up. Could, that There's nothing more pertinent than that to this message. Um, also, I asked you guys to give me some feedback about the overheads and whether, let's see, hang on, get my first slide up there, whether the, uh, whether it was working to put the scripture texts and such up there. And overwhelmingly, the response I got was to keep doing it. So at least for this point, we'll continue to do it. I also got a little feedback that some of my highlighting was uh, a little too busy. So <laughs> I've toned that down a little bit and gone to bold, uh, using using a different way to highlight the text. So you can help me figure out if that works too. I'm new at this, so we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, I'm going to dive right in because we got a lot to cover, but we're actually covering only three verses this morning, again. <laughs> I told you we wouldn't go through the whole book three verses at a time. So far, we're, we're, uh, we're in, on that track, but it'll, it'll get, uh, we'll do bigger chunks starting next week. In verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1, Paul introduced the theme of this great epistle. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. God's righteousness is revealed, it is displayed through redeemed men as we exercise faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That righteousness is not just positional, but practical. It affects our eternal destiny while also directing our behavior this side of heaven. In verses 18 to 20, as we saw last week, Paul began an indictment against all mankind asserting that even though men have the clear testimony regarding the attributes, power, and nature of God, they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Because God has made himself clearly evident to all mankind, both externally through that which he has created, and internally, both to men and within men, Men are left without any excuse when they reject his revelation and suppress his revealed truth. Now here's where we went last week. We saw that God's wrath is revealed against men. And that men deserve God's wrath because they suppress his truth and unrighteousness. And then we saw in verses 19 and 20 that Paul explains the nature of that truth that God has revealed. And he he explained that it is about God. It is about his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. It's And then he also explained that it's truth that is clearly evident. It's visible for all to see. It's not hidden. Where we're going to go this morning is in verses 21 to 23, we're going to see how men suppress that truth. And we'll see that it begins with man's refusal to worship the God who has made himself known. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. And then we'll see that proceeding from that refusal to submit humbly and worship God, man pursues a wisdom that is not from God. And professing to be wise, men become fools. They arrive at a failed theology that proceeds from failed worship. And just to give you a preview of next week to to follow through this logic, next time we'll see in verses 24 to 32 
the impact of man's suppression of the truth, which is failed morality, a failure to worship, failed theology, and failed morality. We'll see that God gave men over to impurity, to degrading passions, and to a depraved mind. In verses 21 to 23, Paul says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Again, at the end of verse 20, Paul said, just before this passage, said that men are without excuse because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Now in verse 21, he picks up that that same thought with the words, even though they knew God. Men are utterly without excuse for their calculated effort to suppress the knowledge of God because by his own doing, they have all been given the knowledge of God. By the way, the age-old question, what about the heathen who haven't heard the gospel, is directly addressed right here. Men, all men, start with the truth, with right information about God. Not just superficial information that really doesn't tell them anything about about the person of God, but clear evidence regarding his attributes, his power, and his nature. If you weren't here last week when we, we looked at just one very tiny but very compelling piece of that evidence... Uh, you might find it useful to go online and, and check that message out. According to Romans one twenty one, the first part, even though God has made these marvelous things known about himself to all men, men failed to honor him as God and to give thanks. The proper response of men to the truth of God is humble worship. The Greek word translated honor in this verse is doxazo, from which we get the word doxology. Uh, There's a very old song dating back to the 1600s that is widely known as the doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now that's a, a pretty fair example of what the word honor is getting at here. To honor God means to humbly worship God in response to who he is and what he has done. To praise him from the heart. But here's a better example from the mouth of King David. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And this goes right along with that marvelous song that we sang just before we we got rolling here. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And then verse 3, When I consider the heavens the work of thy fingers, 
the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? The splendor and the majesty of God revealed in his creation should drive us to a profound sense of humility and of gratitude. The thought that our God, who is infinitely above us in power and majesty, would deign to be mindful of our well-being, to care for us, leads us to a profound sense of humility and of worship. What is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? But ever since the fall of Adam, that has not been the response of men to the revelation of God. The actual response of men to the truth of God is that men did not honor him as God or give thanks. Not only are men thankless toward God, they are dismissive of God. Their response is no thanks and no thanks. Men wanted nothing to do with the true God because the thought of acknowledging that there exists something greater than themselves, someone whose very nature demands their submission, was simply more than men were willing to abide. Consequently, verses 21 and 22 go on to say that men became futile in their own speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, men became fools. As we'll discuss in a moment, men replaced the true God with idols of their own making. And as we'll see next week, the outworking of their bogus theology was depraved behavior because morality always follows theology. But it's vitally important to recognize where this all starts according to what Paul is saying here. The downward spiral toward godless theology and depraved behavior starts with the failure to submit to the true God in worship, to honor Him as God and to give thanks. If we miss the cause and effect here, we make a very common but critically serious error. It is very important that we get this or we fall into that whole Uh, How can a just God condemn people who haven't heard the gospel mindset? See, we have a very strong tendency to believe that false religion originates with bad information. That is, with the absence of clear revelation of God. And so we conclude that it's unjust for God to condemn those who haven't heard the gospel. But God's declaration here turns that logic on its head and declares it to be fundamentally wrong. God says false religion begins not with the absence of clear revelation about God, but with man's refusal to submit to clear revelation about God. Man's failure of theology begins with a failure of submission, a failure of humility, a failure of worship, not the other way around. And that's fundamental. One more time, just to ensure that I'm being clear with graphics. Here's the progression of events. Here's why all men are without excuse condemned to be objects of God's wrath. Men start with clear revelation about God 
And then men, all men, refuse to submit to God by honoring Him as God or by giving thanks. In other words, they refuse to worship the one true God. Having refused to fall down and worship before Him, men replace the truth of God with their own pernicious lie, contriving their own gods to take the place of the one true God. Why? So that they can live on their own terms. And the final step in this downward spiral is that men behave on the basis of their lie. God then condemns men based on every component of that response, starting with their refusal to respond in humble worship, which leads to their bogus theology, and which in turn leads to failed morality. At every point, men are without excuse. In Psalm 28.5, David, speaking of those he calls the workers of iniquity, makes this same point about how men come to rightly deserve the wrath of God. He says it's because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of his hands. And thus he will tear them down and not build them up. Bob pointed me to that one and it's directly on point. Isaiah chapter 5 verses 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. See, he's talking about bad behavior. And then he talks about where it comes from. He says, their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and wine, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of Yahweh, nor do they consider the work of his hands. See, they're celebrating something, but it's not God. Godlessness begins with the failure to respond in grateful worship based on the revelation that God has made of himself. And man's failure is not only a failure of worship, it's a failure of belief, a failure of theology. In Romans 21, the second part, through verse 23, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Following closely after men's failure to humbly worship God is men's failure of theology. The end of verse 21 says, They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Men cast aside the clear revelation of God's sovereign power and divine nature, and they replaced it with their own nonsense. The word translated speculations in the New American Standard is a word that's often translated reasonings or opinions. In the New Testament, it is always used of men, never of God. It has to do with the ponderings of men's minds and hearts, and in most of the passages in which it occurs, it refers to erroneous evil, factious thinking. A great verse for understanding how God sizes up the reasonings of men is 1 Corinthians 3.20. And to give you context, we'll do verses 18 to 20 here. And I'll also put up Romans 1.22 that presents the same assessment, God's assessment of man's version of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no man deceive himself. 
If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He, God, is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. And that reasonings is the same word. And then Romans 1.22, professing to be wise and became fools. The word useless in 1 Corinthians 3.20 is from the same root as the word futile in Romans 1.21. Useless, vain, empty, pointless, foolishness. That's what God thinks of the reasonings of men. Here's a fundamental biblical reality. Wisdom comes from God. Period. And here's another. When men pursue wisdom apart from God, they will not find it. They have God's guarantee that they will not find it. Biblical wisdom isn't what this world calls wisdom. What the world calls wisdom, God calls foolishness. Biblical wisdom is moral skill. More precisely, the skill to make decisions and to act in keeping with the character of God. Wisdom is the property only of God because it proceeds from who He is. He gives it to whom He wishes. And He most certainly does not give it to those who forsake the knowledge that He has revealed about Himself to all men. (coughs) Just before Eve plucked that lovely fruit from the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Then she and Adam ate of the fruit, and in doing so, they exchanged the wisdom of God and the truth of God for an astoundingly destructive lie. They sought a wisdom that did not come through a right relationship with God, who is the one and only source of wisdom, And thus they became fools and they relegated all of mankind to their foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and 21. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And look at this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In the wisdom of God, the world, through its version of wisdom, did not come to know Him. It could not, because the only way to know wisdom, God's wisdom, is first to know God Himself. Men think that they know the meaning of words like wisdom, love, truth, Righteousness, justice, grace, mercy. But all of these fall into the category of the invisible attributes and divine nature of God himself and of God alone. They originate in and proceed from him. They don't exist apart from him. The only way that men ever behold any of these marvelous realities in order to know what they actually are (laughs) is by coming to know God and worshiping Him. 
And God will, under no circumstances, permit men to obtain a knowledge of any of these things while they refuse to honor him as God and give thanks. So what does the world end up with? Well, it ends up with a shabby, pathetic imitation of wisdom. It's not wisdom at all. Romans 1.22 says, Professing to be wise, men became fools. Their wisdom was no more real than their pitiful wooden gods. As the prophet Jeremiah points out in Jeremiah 10.4 and 5, men had to prop up their gods <laughs> so they wouldn't fall over. They had to carry their gods around on their shoulders because they couldn't walk. In the same way, men have to prop up their own wisdom They have to congratulate themselves for their wisdom because it can never stand on its own because it's not wisdom. And according to God's assessment through the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, the foolishness that men embrace in place of the truth of God is fundamentally religious in nature. (coughs) Pardon the allergic cough here. Romans 1, 22 and 23. Men exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You see, men haven't simply rejected any notion of God. They have replaced good theology with bad theology. They've replaced the true God with false gods. Whatever our so-called secular culture claims about how objectively it goes about constructing its version of reality... God's assessment is that there is nothing secular or unreligious about it. Every man has a God. And at the most basic level, every man worships one of only two gods. The true God or self. In Romans 1, 22 and 23, what is the very first idol mentioned? Man. The first and preeminent idol of man is man. At the heart of it, all idolatry is worship of self. Because fundamentally, either God determines truth and reveals it to us, or we determine truth. Either we worship the God in whose image we were made, or we make a God in our own image and worship that. Either way, it's still self-worship when we make our idols. Men create idols in all shapes and sizes and forms, but always for one essential purpose, right? In order to set aside accountability to God, the God who has made himself known. That's Paul's forceful point in verses 21 and 22, that all men start with compelling evidence about the true God, but rather than gratefully honoring him as God, they cast aside his revelation in favor of what? in favor of their own speculations. Now, why would men do such an altogether unreasonable thing? It's really pretty simple. It's because they they want to determine the course of their own lives. Whatever shape or form our idols take, any object of worship other than God amounts to the exaltation and worship of self. And men aren't all that picky about what form their idols take. Because when you get right down to it, if your purpose is to cast off the true God so you can have your own way, 
than pretty much any idol will do. Isaiah zeroes in on man's uh, man worship as the heart of idolatry in Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20. And I'm just going to put some sample ver- or, uh, portions of the passage up here. Verse 13. Uh, first, just a little background here. The prophet presents in this passage a scathing and sarcastic <laughs> indictment of, of the sin of idolatry. In verses 12 to 17, he talks about how the idol maker uh, shapes iron into a cutting tool that he can use to carve his precious idol. really does make me think of Smeagol. Uh, he's so intent on his task that he doesn't eat. He gets really hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he becomes weary. Then once he finishes making his tools, he caref- carefully employs those tools to shape a piece of wood into the idol that he envisioned with his own mind. <clears throat> Isaiah says in verse 13, He takes the wood, he works it with planes, he outlines it with a compass, he makes it like the form of a man. Like the beauty of man so that it may sit in a house. (laughs) Now by Isaiah's time, men had made and worshipped idols in the form of just about every created thing that they could come up with. But the one image that that Isaiah mentions in this indictment of idolatry is the image of Man. And again, I believe that's because all idolatry fundamentally is the exaltation of self over God. The sin of Adam and Eve was essentially the same as the sin of Satan. Satan said in Isaiah 14, 14, I will make myself like the Most High God. I want his seat. And in the garden, Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve followed in the image of his own fatal sin. He said to Eve, God knows that in the day you eat from it, that is the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will be like God, knowing good from evil, good and evil. Isaiah 44 goes on to expose the utter foolishness of idolatry. Isaiah says the idol maker cuts down trees, uses the wood from those trees for three different purposes. Same chunk of wood. To warm himself, to cook his food, and to fashion his God. In verses 16 through 17, uh, actually that's uh, 15 through 17, says, Then it, the wood from a tree, becomes something for man to burn. So he takes one of them, one, one piece of that wood, he warms himself, he also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a God and worships it. He makes it a graven image, and he falls down before it. (laughs) Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself, and he says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships it. He also prays to it, and he says, Deliver me, for thou art my God. (laughs) Then in verses 18 to 20, Isaiah talks about the darkness, the spiritual darkness, the incredible self-deception and blindness that characterizes the heart of men when they engage in such practices. 
He says, they do not know, nor do they understand, for he, God, has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. And no one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and also have baked bread over its coals, I roast meat and eat it, then I make the rest of it into an abomination. (laughs) I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and look at this, he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Look carefully at what God is saying here through Isaiah. The idolater is incapable of seeing the foolishness of his own lie or even recognizing that it is a lie. He cannot say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Isn't this junk? This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 1.21 when he says men became futile in their own speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That is what happens when men set aside the truth that God has given to them about himself. When they shove it under the rug and try to hide it and keep it from seeing the light of day, what they end up with is utter darkness. Their hearts become darkened to the point they don't even recognize the ridiculousness of their own way of thinking. And they definitely do not recognize the truth when they see it. You want to know how this world thinks? That is how this world thinks. And this spiritual blindness is exceedingly powerful in its destructiveness. It is at the very heart of the world system that surrounds us. So I want to recap. Here's how men suppress the truth that God has made known about himself. First, they refuse to worship him, to honor him as God or give thanks. And then once they've dug in their heels against the possibility of humbly submitting themselves to God, they devise a lie to replace God. Professing to be wise, they become fools. And in doing so, they make themselves their own God. Now, as I mentioned last week, this entire section of Romans from Romans 1.18 through 3.20 is talking about unbelievers. It's an indictment of fallen mankind, all mankind, that declares everyone to be unrighteous, ungodly, and helplessly lost before God. So I don't want to represent this passage as describing Christians because that's not who it's talking about. But brothers and sisters, there's a level at which the pattern Paul is talking about here pertains very importantly to us who belong to Christ. And I want to thank Bob for nudging me to give this some serious thought and study. There is a cause and effect relationship in this passage that we at believers, as believers must not miss. And it's the relationship between grateful worship and godliness. Godliness in our mindset and in our behavior. And it's a, it's a relationship that's borne out all over Scripture. We saw in Romans one twenty one that the downward spiral in fallen mankind began with the failure to worship God, to humbly honor Him as God and give thanks. 
in response to the revelation that he had given to all men of his attributes, his power, and his nature. But, beloved, if the issue of worship is so foundational to the spiritual failure of fallen men, it is also foundational to the spiritual success of redeemed men. The measure of our success in walking with God in a manner worthy of our calling is fundamentally tied to the priority that we give to worship. And the heart of biblical worship is thankfulness to God. Thankfulness not bottled up, but poured out. It's amazing how consistently in Scripture we find that thankfulness to God is critically tied to God's call to us to worship Him, particularly as we worship worship Him together, corporately, but also individually. It's also striking how critically thankfulness to God is connected to both godliness and unity within the body of Christ. To put it another way, the Bible presents unity and godliness in the body as well as godliness in individual believers as being highly dependent upon how thankful thankful we are to God for who he is and what he has done. If we are not thankful actively, intentionally, enthusiastically, and vocally thankful, then we will not be godly. I was really struck this morning during the worship by my brother Jonathan's words. Three times he said, I am so thankful to God. And then when he prayed, the word thanks came up over and over. In Colossians 3, Paul talks about the new man that we have put on. Sorry, I got got behind, behind myself. Okay. Colossians 3. Paul talks about the new man that we have put on in Christ and how that man manifests himself by producing love and unity within the body of Christ through behaviors such as compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Rather than disunity and ungodly behaviors like anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And then in verses 15 to 17, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Paul is talking about the body of Christ coming together to glorify God and to build one another up in unity and in peace. (laughs) And three times in this brief passage, he points out the importance of thankfulness to God. Not thankfulness held inside, thankfulness expressed, shared together with the saints and poured out to overflowing. He uses very similar wording in Ephesians 5 verses 15 to 20, and I find it interesting in light of our study of Romans 1, 21 to 23, that he seems to draw here a connection between godly wisdom and vibrant worship. He says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. (laughs) It's like once he gets rolling, he can't wind down. (laughs) I believe this is exceedingly important. Do we want to be a church that's powerfully used by God? Do we want to truly build each other up? Do we want a vibrant church in which God is honored and glorified? Then our worship must be from the heart and it must be filled with thanksgiving to our God. I'll say it again. If we are not thankful, actively, intentionally, enthusiastically and vocally thankful, then we will not be godly as a church or as individuals. I believe our worship, both individually and corporately, must be overwhelmingly about praise to God and gratitude to Him for who He is and what He has done. I'm going to say a couple of things that are just from me. I don't think our worship time should be yet another forum for teaching. And I'm not so sure our prayer time should be as focused as it is on presenting requests to God. I think perhaps it should be more focused on praise and thanksgiving. I think there's a whole lot that we do well as a body. But I think we have some things to learn about worship and praise. And as I look at the foundational priority on worship in God's word, I strongly believe that that needs to be remedied. We need a common vision and commitment to offer up thanksgiving to God with all our hearts for who he is and what he has done. And as my brother Ken Looney pointed out to me a while back when we were discussing the matter of worship, the priority of thanksgiving and praise must be manifested in our individual lives and in our homes so that when we come together on Sundays, it's real. If we spend every day but Sunday grumbling and complaining and questioning the faithfulness of God, and then we come together here on Sunday mornings and attempt to express praise to Him, that praise will fall flat because it will not be from the heart. We must honor God as God and give thanks in all things and at all times. There, uh, this is not something that's going to get better for us as a church programmatically. We're not going to find some structure to put in place that, that makes us better worshipers. It will get better when we personally and corporately embrace the priority that God has placed on heartfelt, thankful worship. God has blessed our body with many gifted teachers and diligent students of the word. And that's a very real blessing indeed. But great teaching does not equate to great worship. Worship in the Bible in both Testaments is characterized by an overflowing of expressed gratitude to God for his person and his works. And it's supposed to engage the whole person. (laughs) Bear with me here. 
But how can we sing the words, I lift up my hands unto thy name, while we all have our hands in our pockets or at our sides? I'm guilty as charged. I know we're not all wired the same. (laughs) Some of us are more demonstrative than average, and some of us are less demonstrative than average. And that's as it should be. Worship like giving needs to be from the heart, not under compulsion. But it must certainly not be under suppression. And I can tell you for sure there are times I have wanted to raise my hands in worship. But I haven't done so because nobody else is raising theirs and I don't want to be the weird guy. And I suspect I'm not alone. In fact, that's not accurate. I know from talking with some of you that I'm not alone. Brothers and sisters, is that worship? Are we so afraid of extremes that we hear about in other churches or so afraid of embarrassing ourselves that we're unwilling to respond to the person and work of God with our whole hearts? May our worship never be about us or about anyone other than our Savior and our Master. May it always be a response to the person, the work, and the promises of our God. In 2 Samuel 6, when David was moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling sheep every six paces. And he, David, the king of Israel, danced before the Lord with all his might. David and all the house of Israel were bringing the Ark of the Lord up with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. And he was, David was so overcome with praise and thanksgiving toward God that his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, was embarrassed to the point of being disgusted. But David offered no apology to his stodgy wife because he wasn't the one who was in the wrong. She was. He said to his wife, It, David's enthusiastic worship, was before the Lord. That means in the eyes of the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, the ones that you were embarrassed to have seen me, with them I will be distinguished. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Which tells me God agreed with David. David's worship here was in response to God's amazing covenant of grace, to the promises of God that David knew very well he didn't deserve. Twice, he says, his celebration was before the Lord, in the eyes of God. And those were the only eyes that mattered to David. It wasn't about himself or his wife or anyone else. It was about God. He was so overcome with thanksgiving that he danced before the Lord with all his might, with all his might, giving no thought to himself or to how he might be perceived. He was a brother at that point with those over whom he ruled in the worship of their God. Indeed, the grace of God drove him to be humble in his own eyes rather than proud, as it must. That's what the knowledge of God's character, God's promises, and God's works does to God's people when our eyes are truly on Him and not on the wrong things. 
the knowledge of the holy humbles us and drives us to heartfelt, overflowing worship. Shall we who are the redeemed of the Lord, who have the testimony of the person and work of God in creation, in Scripture, in the person of Jesus Christ, and in our own hearts by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, be any less overcome with praise to our God than David? Shall we be embarrassed to praise and sing with all our hearts, to raise our hands to the God of heaven? If we are, then we're like Michael and not like David, and that is a problem. Psalm 103 is a marvelous template for genuine worship. You know, I was looking at that psalm last night, and I realized something. It doesn't ask God for anything, not one thing. David begins by calling his own soul to worship. And he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. His name is His person, His character. And then a parallel statement. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Who He is and what He has done. And then it goes on for verse after beautiful verse, basking in those two realities. Every word of this psalm after the call to praise in the first two verses is declarative. Proclaiming God's name and proclaiming, declaring his benefits. And there are many, many other praise psalms that do the same thing. We've got lots of good examples. That is worship. God hasn't been unclear about what it looks like. (laughs) Beloved, may we never let our traditions, our culture, our self-interest, or any other thing prevent us from worshiping our Master and our Redeemer with all that is within us. Do you think we can do that? One last thing. Genuine worship is always a response to God's revelation of himself. The revelation of God in nature is sufficient to condemn every man, and that's what it does. But the revelation of God in Christ, as presented only in the Bible, is that by which God, or that which God has empowered to save everyone who believes. And he empowers his word by the work of his spirit. So we are bound inextricably from our dependence upon God's revelation of himself. Doesn't do any good to talk about good worship, vibrant worship, if we're not exposed to beholding God. And we get that that view of God only from his word. Colossians 3, verses 15 to 17, passage that we looked at earlier in conjunction with peace and unity and vibrant worship. Verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
we're in an amazingly blessed position when it comes to our access to the fullness of God's revelation. And I'm just about done here. (laughs) We get to have the complete Word of God in book form, on our computers, on our iPhones and iPads and Androids and Kindles and Nooks. You get the point. The Word of God that the writer of Hebrews says is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God that never returns to God without accomplishing the purpose for which He sent it. Isaiah 55:11. The Word of God that brings us to our knees in gratitude to God for who He is and for all that He has done in Jesus Christ. May we never cease to abide in his revelation of himself to us in order that we may worship and serve him always in spirit and in truth. Loving Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. Thank you for the power of this passage. Thank you for the, uh, the uncompromising indictment of mankind that you present here. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here, if there's anyone here who is looking for any truth apart from that which comes from you, that he or she will abandon their foolishness. Recognize that they are not wise, they are fools, and they will they will cling, they will run to you and fall down before you as the God who has made himself known. And they will know that they are nothing but sinners like all of us, lost and dead and helpless to make ourselves righteous in your eyes with the righteousness of our own. And they will confess to you, Lord, that that which makes us righteous is the righteousness of Jesus Christ who paid the eternal penalty for our sin and by whose righteousness, in whose righteousness, you have covered us and clothed us so that we can stand before you spotless and blameless for all eternity because of what you did, not because of what we did. And for us, Lord, who who know you, who believe and trust in your Son as our only Savior and Master, Teach us, Father, to honor you as God and to give thanks always and in all things. Teach us to worship you as a body of believers in a way that delights your heart, that is an offering, a sacrifice of praise, that is unbridled, that is uncompromising, that is overflowing. Father, you are worthy of nothing less than all that is within us. Teach us to give that back to you by the power of your Spirit within us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.